Welcome to the Cosmic Savannah with Dr. Daniel Kanema and Dr. Jacinta Dalhays. Each episode, we'll be giving you a behind-the-scenes look at world-class astronomy and astrophysics happening under African skies. Let us introduce you to the people involved, the technology we use, the exciting work we do, and the fascinating discoveries we make. Sit back and relax as we take you on a safari through the skies. Welcome to episode 13, lucky last for the season. (laughs) It's kind of sad. Well, a break will be good. Yeah, for everybody. And then everyone can catch up. Yes, that's right. Although if you're listening to episode 13, you've already caught up. Well done. (laughs) Unless you're listening for the first time, in which case you're going to need to know a few things in order to understand this episode. (laughs) Who are we talking to today? So today I have to be on my best behavior because we're talking to my boss. <laughs> we'll be chatting with Professor Petri Weisenen, who is the director of the South African Astronomical Observatory, and therefore my boss. And we'll be talking to him about where he's come from, his research, and uh, what's going on with SAO now, with SALT, and all of the exciting things that are that SALT has discovered, yeah. and the things that are coming up. Okay, so I thought it was really exciting when we spoke to Petri, um, but we covered a lot of ground. And so if our listeners have heard episode one, they'll be up to scratch with what we're talking about. But for any listeners who are joining us for the first time, we've got a few things to explain. So Dan, you don't know that I'm going to do this, but I'm going to give you a quiz. Okay. Do I get marked at the end? <laughs> yes. Okay. So it's a, it's a rapid fire quiz. Okay, go. Okay. All right. Ready? What is the SAAO? South African Astronomical Observatory. What does it do? We are the National Center for Optical and Infrared Astronomy. Who is Petri? He's my boss. He's the director. (laughs) (laughs) What is Sutherland? So Sutherland is where our telescopes are. Uh, It's four hours from Cape Town and it is is the observing station. What's in Sutherland? Uh, There are about 15 telescopes up on the plateau uh, and then various support buildings. It's a relatively high altitude, very, very dry location, very, very dark, so very, very good for optical and infrared astronomy. And our head office is here in Cape Town. Why aren't the telescopes in Cape Town? Because there's a lot of light pollution Mm. and very bad weather in Cape Town. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, especially in winter. Well, when it actually rains. And a lot of light pollution, (laughs) not just a little bit. Yeah. I mean, we can see Cape Town from Sutherland. Whoa, really? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm getting distracted from my quiz. What is SALT? SALT is the Southern African Large Telescope, and it is a partnership of various institutions around the world. Uh, South Africa is a 30% partner in SALT, which means that we uh, paid 30% of the money and we get 30% of the time. So the other institutions are spread around various countries uh, around the world, India, Poland, uh, the UK, uh, America. Uh, and all of those institutes get uh, portions of SALT observing time. What, in your opinion, is the most exciting thing that SALT has done? The gravitational wave event in 2017. What is that? So, in 2017, the LIGO Gravitational Wave Observatory uh, observed a gravitational wave event, which is a ripple in space and time that came flying through the Earth. And simultaneously, some gamma-ray telescopes observed some gamma rays, a gamma-ray burst, from a small patch in the sky. This was localized by using other telescopes, optical telescopes, and in total about 70 telescopes followed up on this event, and we, for the very first time in astronomy, observed the same event in gravitational waves and electromagnetic radiation, so that's light, which was very, very exciting, and SALT was involved. Would that be considered a transient event? Yes. 
What is a transient event? Something that happens uh, over a short period of time. Okay, that's it. Yeah. You got 100%. Yes, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So uh, hopefully you're all up to scratch and you took notes on all of that. Uh, <laughs> and then we can chat to Petri and we'll test you again afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> Listen to quiz. No, I'm joking. <laughs> okay, let's hear from Petri. Today we're joined by my boss, Professor Petri Weisenen, who is the director of the South African Astronomical Observatory, uh, SAO. Welcome, Petri. Welcome, Petri. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome to the Cosmic Savannah. Before we get to the sort of uh, SAO and SALT and all of the things we, we've spoken about a bit before, but we'd like to ask you about, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and how you came to be here in South Africa? So I came to South Africa 15 years ago. Um, I, was, I actually came as a research fellow originally and then moved on to a salt astronomer uh, soon after that. But, uh, well, okay, I'm, I am an astronomer, so before that I was a postdoc in Chile with the European Southern Observatory. Oh, which part of Chile were you in? Uh, Santiago, mm -hmm. so based in Santiago, but then for my work I traveled up and down to Paranal, Cerro Paranal, where the VLT telescopes are. And that's in the Andes Mountains? On the Andes, on the foothills of mm -hmm. Andes, yeah. And, and Atacama Desert, essentially, the very, very dry area, much drier than our Sutherland over here. But I'm originally from Finland. So I studied astronomy there, did my PhD for the Helsinki University, although my research was actually done in US at the CFA in Boston area, Harvard University, and then went back to, back to Finland for a little while and then to Chile and then to here. So 15 years here, seen through the whole organization from all the way from postdoc. What was your research about? I do galaxy evolution, extragalactic astronomy. So I especially concentrate on interacting galaxies, galaxies which kind of smash together. And then when, with, with that pressure, it creates starburst, star formation. You get active galactic nuclei forming and that whole interplay of, of star formation, active AGN. Space kind of galaxy stuff. Absolutely. Best kind of research, <laughs> extragalactic <laughs> evolution, galaxy evolution. Uh, so you arrived here then in what, 2004? 2004, yes. So just before SALT was completed. That's right, yeah. So oh. and, and SALT was, was one of the big drivers why I took this job when I was applying for, for jobs for my second postdoc. Uh, seeing that SALT was just coming online and seeing what was happening over here, that, that was one of the big draws. Because SALT is a, a spectacular instrument for doing these sorts of studies with galaxy evolution. Yeah, absolutely. You need for faint galaxies, distant galaxies, uh, you know, looking into the far reaches of the universe, you need massive, big telescopes, big mirrors, and that's what SALT is. So can you describe SALT to us a little bit? We've spoken about it a few times on the podcast before, but in your own words, sort of what is SALT and why is it so exciting? Well, telescopes are, are light buckets. They just gather the light. So the bigger the telescope, the more light you get and the fainter objects you can see. So SALT is the biggest single telescope in the Southern Hemisphere at the moment for, for the time being, one of the big uh, half dozen in the whole planet. It's slightly different from, from the other designs, but there's one in Texas, the HET, which is similar, where, where it doesn't move in one direction, it just stares in, in the same elevation. But then you compensate for that with a moving prime focus. Yeah, I don't want to get too, too technical over there, but the end result is that you have a big telescope, which you can build a little bit cheaper, actually factors a few cheaper than otherwise that size telescope, which fit the bill and what we could do here in South Africa at the time very well. And um, it, otherwise, it's operated exactly the same way as, say, the VLTs where I worked before. You have thousands of 
observations in the queue, and then the staff just pull up things which are visible at any given time, uh, which are best suited for those conditions, and do the science. And it's it's been doing that very well after a bumping start, I have to say, from 2004 to maybe 2010. But after that, since 2011, it's been it's been perform- performing remarkably well. What was the bumpy start? There were technical, there's a couple of big technical things. One was that the image quality wasn't right. So there's something wrong with the optics. It took us a couple of years, two, three years to really figure out what was wrong and then to fix it. So it was an optical image quality problem. So like blurry images? Yeah, or? yeah, blurry, mm-hmm. you know, stars which look like starfish yeah. rather than dots. Okay. Right? <laughs> but didn't Hubble, Hubble had some problem like that when oh, it was yeah. first launched? And yes, it did, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah, the whole... Um, it's very collaboration. Correct, yes, right? exactly. Yeah, luckily we didn't have to go to space to correct, yeah. correct ours. It was uh, on, on the telescope. So their, their mistake was horribly expensive. Uh, we also had a problem with, with the main workhorse instrument, the RSS spectrograph. There was um, throughput. Essentially half of the light was missing because of um, some elements being foggy. And that had to be corrected as well. It took a little while. But as I said, by 2011, it was all fine. And it's operating well now. Yes, very well. And some exciting signs coming out of SALT? Yes, yeah. SALT users are publishing probably about 50 refereed papers. Basically every week there's a refereed paper coming Whoa, out of SALT. Really? Of all sorts of stuff. I've been so bogged down with management the last few months that I haven't even followed, out, followed up what's been happening recently. But typically a lot of papers coming out are supernovae, transient science is big. Of course, the galaxy evolution stuff that I'm interested in as well, you know, emerging galaxies, galaxy pairs, quasars, and transient astronomy in general. Time domain astronomy is is as big thing with SALT as it is elsewhere in the community here. So time domain astronomy being like things that suddenly flash in the sky, transients? Yes. So I guess time domain, it could be many things. So it's both things which, you know, as you say, go bump in the night, something happens which hasn't happened before, explosions, which you don't know what they are then you need to follow them up. But it could be also a repeating phenomena. So time domain also is, it, it includes things where you know the regularity of, but it, it just changes with time. So you have to monitor for longer periods to figure out what exactly is going on. Would that include things like pulsars? Yes, yeah, pulsars. Different kinds of variable stars, cataclysmic variables, uh, eclipsing binaries, uh, but also exoplanets. Because exoplanets, you know, tra- exoplanet transits, um, for example, you know, they periodic, a planet goes around a, around a star, that star then is tugged with that gravity in a certain period. And to figure out what the characteristics of that planet are, is, is you need a longer baseline of observation. So that's time domain as well. It's mm-hmm. not only stars, it can be planets as well. I guess it's rare that we talk about time, time changing things when we talk about astronomy, because we work in the field of, of galaxies and things don't change on human timescales there. But there are some things that do change on observable timescales, as you said, like pulsars and um, stars flashing and things like that. Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting because my own own field is is galaxies, as I said, and you guys too. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, it takes tens of millions or yeah. billions of years to see the see the change, which is a little bit discouraging, and that's why you need huge data sets to figure out what, what what's going on. So, in that sense, all my career, I've actually been a support astronomer, right? So, I've observed VLT, other telescopes, and SALT for the last you know ten, twelve years, and. Um, a lot of the exciting things I've seen in, in my 
job as a support astronomer have been the time domain things, you know, see, looking at a star on a, on a monitor, which then, you know, boom, 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 gone. And it's just, <laughs> just totally gone. Then you wait for five minutes and boom, it's back. Or, or looking for supernovae or gamma ray bursts, which aren't on any of the surveys. Somebody calls in or sends an email or a WhatsApp saying, hey, hey, something's on the sky. And then you turn the whole telescope and, and look at it. It was never there. And you, you might be the first person on the planet looking at it. And it's, that's, that's exciting. What exactly is a support astronomer? So support astronomers in observatories do observations. So the traditional way of doing astronomy is that you have an astronomer who does their own science, their own project, and then go to a telescope and do their own observations. Uh, a support astronomer is, in the usual way of using the word, is that they are part of the staff of that observatory, and they do the observations not for themselves, but whoever is using that telescope. So in, in Salt's case, when I came back in the day, uh, there were six of us who were operating salt every night. So one of us was up there for every for any given week, you know, in a six week shift. Uh, obviously, there were our own projects there, as you know, in, in the queue, the ones that we had gotten through by proposals. But most of the time, we would be doing observations for others. So we spoke to Moses Mohatsi in episode one, and, and he's an assault astronomer, exactly. so it's the same job as that. That's right, mm-hmm. yes. So I, yes. When I was doing my PhD, I uh, was kind of one of the last generation of students to actually go to the telescope and take my own observations that I'd proposed. And this was with the Parkes Radio Telescope in right. Australia. Uh, but now it's largely this small uh, Q-observing sort of scheme, isn't it, where <laughs> the support astronomer is responsible for choosing what project is going to be observed depending on the on the sky conditions that night. That's right, yeah. So all the larger telescopes in the world, almost all, not, not every single one, but most of them operate in the service or queue scheduled mode because it's much more efficient. So rather than giving a night or even a week to one single project, you have lots of them available at any given time and you can suit very flexibly to make the most of the given time because different projects require different conditions, right? So. If it's just one person, they'll take the great conditions, they'll take the bad conditions just because they, they don't have a choice. But now some other some projects are fine with marginal cloud conditions or bright moon. Some others need the, the you know the, the best clarity, the best seeing, the darkest skies. So then you you just fit it in. Yeah, and, and you were the support astronomer for quite an exciting event a couple of years ago, right? Right, yes. Uh, <laughs> thanks for reminding me. That's, that's, uh, that's a, that, that was very exciting, yes. So the first gravitational wave event, which was linked to a electromagnetic event or, or optical optical source. So putting together gravitational waves with an optical. Yeah, I guess it's the first wavelength. time that we detected actual light from a gravitational wave event. That's exactly so. And that just happened to be during the time I was observing at SALT, which was um, wow. very exciting. So this massive, complex thing of people starting to you know, figure out where it was from. And uh, at that time, it was all very secret. It, it's changed to the better now. It's, the community is much more open now. But at that time, it was very secret. You know, Who would know the coordinates? Who gets it first? Don't tell to the next guy. Even in Sutherland, when we were sitting there in the dinner table, 
you know, there was five of us there, different telescopes, and everybody knew what we were going <laughs> to But nobody was talking yeah. about it. Nobody was talking about it. <laughs> I was uh, meant to be doing some um, observer training at the Australia Telescope Compact Array, a radio telescope in Australia at the time, and my um, observations got bumped because they were working on a quote-unquote secret project, <laughs> which right. we all knew was the gravitational yeah. wave follow-up <laughs> attempt, but no one was actually yeah. saying it. Yeah. So it ended up very well for us all and for our observations. So we managed to get the very first kind of good, decent spectrum of the object the very first night and then the next two nights as well, got together with all the others and, and publishing that. So that, that was really exciting. That, yeah, for sure, that. and 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 now we're we're still involved in that, right? Because uh, exactly. Lago is still observing, and we're hoping that's to. right. And we we've now taking it more seriously as well, or thinking beforehand how exactly to handle all the communication. And it, it's not only the the telescopes, but it's also the, the you know the, the people collaboration. Who, what kind of policies do you have in place? What do you agree to do? Who works with who? What is open? What is not? So figuring all that out, it's it's um, it. it it's not only a technical challenge, it's actually also a social and policy challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Because this involved, I mean, the whole the whole project involved more than, what, 200 astronomers around the world? I think there were three, yeah, three and a half thousand on the paper. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. So, so it, quite it, a lot it really was that. thousands, wow. thousands, of thousands of astronomers, dozens, if not hundreds of telescopes and observatories. I think in the paper it was like I think 70, there was 70, 70, 70 telescopes on the paper yeah. and 700 institutions. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's incredible. Which is pretty much everyone. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. and a third of all the astronomers worldwide, right? Oh, I, I was. I, I didn't get to be. I on didn't it. get in either. <laughs> well, you, one third. I was. I was there. So I know. Oh, well, thanks. Three. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So you took you took up this room. <laughs> it was a good point though that you mentioned about you know going to telescopes and learning to observe as a student, and that's one of the things that I feel strongly that. Uh, us here, SAO as an observatory, has a big role to play because the world is changing towards that remote observing, service observing, and in the future, robotic observing, totally automated one. You know, what's the role of astronomers in the observing part? But the thing is that to, to get those things going, to write the algorithms, to write the software, to do it automatically, you do need still people who understand what they're doing. You need, do need people who know what the data is, how it's taken. So you always will need people who know how to do observations. So if we don't uphold the skills of people to train them to actually operate hands-on telescopes to see how the whole process goes, you won't soon have people not only to operate them, but not even to, to write the programs to, to do it. And that's our role. We, we have to train people in addition to developing the technology to do the remote, to do the robotic and the algorithms, we do need to train the people to do it. These kinds of places are the kind of the last places on, on, on the astronomy community who can do it. I mean, that's part of the world we live in right now, I guess, that the computers and computing are taking over so much of the stuff that a human would ordinarily have done. And you talk about first service observing, so then the actual astronomer isn't taking the observation. The next step is robotic observing, where there isn't even a service observer then. The telescope is controlling itself, taking its exposures and, and, right. and downloading the data. And then the final step, uh, which you briefly mentioned, was the intelligent observatory concept, which SAO is moving towards, where the machine learning or artificial intelligence will dictate those cues. So that, that is the direction that we're going. Mm -hmm. But how do we tie that in with this need for people to understand the machinery of, of these instruments and actually understand the instruments, right? Because you're going to have to understand in a lot of detail the, the capabilities of 
these telescopes and what they can and can't do. So first of all, indeed, SAO is, is wanting to be right in the for forefront of that development. That's one of our, our strong suits. It's, it's our niche that we have many telescopes in one place. We have the flexibility to try to make them work together. We have uh, not only our own telescopes, we have many hosted ones, but we have agreements with them. We have slices of time, and we really want to make that a, a, a network that, that operates together. And that's that's what the intelligent observatory is about. But there's a massive amount of software. You know, you alluded to machine learning, artificial intelligence. All of that comes into it. So you need the other technology aspects, which we need to tap into. Computing, computer science is probably much more than we've had before. In addition to our own strengths of, say, mechanical, electrical engineering, other software development, and uh, then keep the astronomers trained. They still somebody still needs to understand what is happening, what the goal is, why do you do it? Uh, somebody needs to do the science. So I don't see humans disappearing from the system, not at all, but we just need to take the humans out of the places where they don't need to be, which is the very quick decision. So, you know, like we, we were talking about that gravitational wave event, it still really was, you, you got a trigger and then people were deciding what to do. Ideally, an algorithm should do that. And an algorithm decides which telescope should take the data because we know what the system is, we can pre-program that. And then a it's much faster than trying to get somebody who's in a, just happens to be at coffee at the time. And uh, it's just a machine and algorithm which makes the decision and points the telescopes and takes the data, analyzes it right away, makes a decision whether it's interesting or not, whether to switch it over to the next layer of telescopes. So this is what the Intelligent Observatory is? Yes, that's, that's what the initiative is. And uh, we got some funding for it. We really have a big vision what it would look like in five or 10 years time. It's, it's, a, it's a big project and not done in isolation either. There's other places in the world who are going the similar, similar routes and we need to be plugged into them as well because astronomy inherently is a, is a global, absolutely totally global science. We need to be talking to the other players and uh, do our bit, but not in isolation. So how do you build an intelligent observatory? What do you do with the funding that you've received? At the moment, we're in the stage of essentially doing a three-year pilot project, a, a kind of self-defined project phase where we actually do a very rigorous systems engineering approach to specifying what are the outcomes and how do we get there. We have funding for uh, software people, astronomers as well, and mostly it will be new astronomy software development, telescope development, and then changing a subset of our own telescopes in Sutherland to be flexible. So some of them still need human intervention to change instruments, for example, and we need to get away from that. SALT already does, it takes 15 seconds to go from spectroscopy to imaging or high resolution spectroscopy to low resolution, just a click of a button on the monitor. But some of the other telescopes don't do that. You actually need a team of people to come in the afternoon to change the instrument. So we need those changes to be automatic, remote, that you can do it from anywhere. Uh, so that first instance of the project is a combination of of some hardware changes to our telescopes, making them remote observable from Cape Town, which already happens partially, and then lots of intelligent uh, software development in connection with people who actually understand what they're doing. Because astronomers, you know, we, we kind of learn, as you guys know, you learn coding as you go. Mm -hmm. we, don't, we don't always do the yeah. most 
professional coding. <laughs> so we need some professional help there. Yeah, my code looks like spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid to show my code to anybody else. <laughs> I think I think all astronomers are, especially to a code developer.、Mm-hmm. Uh, we never would. But so so then the I guess with this intelligent observatory concept and that. That change and how observations are going to take place,、um, then the role of the the astronomer does change. You're still involved in the science, and to some degree, I mean, you have software developers writing some of the software, but you have to you have to direct that. I mean, it feels to me like it's a it's a positive step. I, I understand that you lose some of the the intimacy with the telescope, but the productivity. Can go up so much because you don't have to wait for these decisions to be made.、Um, what the telescope. So every waking moment, where the telescope is available for observing, it is observing, yes, and it's and, doing and it's doing something which suits that that yes, time. So yes, it, it really uses the time efficiently.、Yes. Yeah. So so the efficiency of the whole observatory is going to go up. Yeah. Which means, as astronomers, we're actually just going to have more data than we currently do. Yeah. I mean, we need to update the way we how we process and analyze data and write papers as well, because even as it is now, a lot of us are kind of drowning in a way. You can't publish as fast as you get good quality data, so that that needs to be thought of as well at the other end of that pipeline、yeah. of data to papers. But I, I, I see your point in, in the astronomy change, the landscape changing a little bit. So people going observing that'll be less. The support astronomers that I talked about, and that's kind of a breed which has been around now for the last twenty, thirty years, maybe, maybe twenty years. That's probably going to go down as well because it's more and more automatic. But as I said before, the the knowledge of how to do it that has to be retained because otherwise you can't build the system. We'll all need to be more kind of savvy how we how we use the technology. But the amount of humans, I don't think that will go down. I mean, in idealistic sense, we'll have more time to actually think. So, how best to keep this knowledge going and to to train the students? In the observatory environment, we just we we're, we're lucky to have several telescopes of different sizes, and we're organization also which is quite flexible and friendly, right? So you know, if, if people want to go observe, we'll just do it. And I I want all the students to get, regardless of what their projects are, to have the opportunity to actually spend nights and weeks at the observatory, getting that intimate sense, and、uh, because that's where a lot of people's the first love to astronomy kind of started from that kind of feelings and you know that emotional attachment. So so you need to give give that to people from both that kind of attachment perspective. But also from the perspective that they then understand really what's going on and what affects what you know what does weather do to data, before they then go a few years later and they're the ones designing an algorithm how the weather、mm. should be taken into account in an, in a robotic telescope. For them to have seen that is is firsthand is extremely important. In addition to all the, the basic tools that you need to learn in, in astronomy, astrophysics in general, you know, from from university courses, that as well. But essentially, what I'm saying is, an observatory, our main responsibility is to get the the next generation still clued up with telescopes, instrumentation, hands-on observing, while they then develop the for the whole global community the the efficient way of doing it. It's very exciting. I mean, I, I think the intelligent observatory thing, and I mean, as you say, other other telescopes and other institutions are doing this at the same time. And then we will have not just the the telescopes in Sutherland linked up.、Uh, we we can then link up to all of the other large telescopes and survey telescopes and things like that, so that the whole astronomy community can be linked up to do more efficient 
astronomy. Yeah, yeah. And um, I know it's a buzzword and, you know, politicians use it for, for their own purposes, but it, it does remain true that all of this connects very well with what's called a fourth industrial revolution. And um, whatever it means in, in practice, honestly, I don't, I don't know who will be listening to this, but it can be used to good use in, in funding-wise because the whole concept fits so well with what countries like South Africa want to do in the future. Raise the level of high-tech, raise the level of how do you do technology, uh, merge human-machine, human-algorithm in, in interfaces. So, you know, if, if we package it rightly or promote it rightly, I could see in the future places where, we, say from the industry, we, we could get buy-ins. It's, it's an exciting application of of this kinds of projects studying space studying the universe studying how the universe really deep down works in the framework of of this could be advertised or, or tagged in as a, as a fourth industrial revolution type of a project yeah i think astronomy is great like that because i mean there's a lot of talk about it with ska the amount of data that's coming in. But it's not just SKA is producing more and more data. Uh, you know, SAO is producing more and more data. Yeah. And what we do with that data and how we handle it and how we digest it needs to keep up. The The sort of fourth industrial revolution needs these sorts of Yes, spaces. practical. Yeah. So, it yeah. so it doesn't remain only a word, yeah, an exactly. exciting word, but this this is actually something practical that you can do, which really merges the the, the essence of what. Yeah, we're not just measuring Facebook clicks. Like we're, we're, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're like we actually want to learn. So, well, well, we won't go into that. <laughs> we want to learn something about the universe, not just about people and their behavior. Yeah, definitely want to learn something of the universe, how it works, and then share that information as well, which is another important aspect. What SAO yeah. does. Yeah. So there's the Intelligent Observatory coming up. What else is there in the future of the SAAO? Dan's written some notes for me here, and it says SALT <laughs> 2.0, and I've not heard of that. What is that? <laughs> so, yeah, before we go into the 2.0, you do the 1.5, <laughs> So, which is actually a formal project. So there's a project called SALT 1.5, you know, SALT Generation 1.5. Which of, of which the Intelligent Observatory actually is a sub-project. And then there's a couple of other other things there. Uh, so the other exciting big development in SAO going forward in a year's time scales is instrumentation development. So uh, upping our level of building astronomical instrumentation. We've done that for, for years already, but we just need to do more of it, more engineering, more international projects. There, I mean, astronomy projects are they're massive and huge, really expensive as well. I and mean, to, to build a new instrument on a 10 meter class telescope like, like us or, or elsewhere in the world, they can easily be 10 or 20 million dollars, the instrument, just one instrument. So what happens usually is that there's multiple groups working together. So it's not one institute building it, but there's multiple. So they're getting into, and that's the thing we haven't done. So we built small instruments for ourselves, for our own telescopes. But we haven't been involved in big international projects. And building that skill, the, the core set of people that we have already, making it larger to get into these big astronomy projects worldwide, being part of big astronomy instrumentation project as a one part of the collaboration, that's, that's definitely one of our goals. And that way we develop both engineering skills, techni technician skills, software skills in our own context for the country and obviously for our own telescopes as, as well. So one of those sub-projects sub in the 1.5 uh, generation <laughs> project is, is getting a new small um, 
kind of single object spectrograph serving the transient time domain science that we were just talking about for SALT. And then the third sub-project is um, making sure that we can do exoplanets as well. So we have an instrument for it already, but more of a software project, calibration project, getting new hardware to, to really be able to play at the world level on exoplanet research, finding other planets elsewhere and characterizing them. And the idea with this is it's a sort of a the timeline is about three years. By the end of that, demonstrating that we can do it, both software and instrumentation development, then start looking at the SALT 2.0. So what that would be, we don't know yet. There's, there, was, there was lots of thought going to it a year, two years ago, what possibilities maybe, uh, but it hasn't been decided. But the, the key is to, to rise to a level where we can actually, SAO could be bidding that, listen, we have the skills. Uh, if there's funding, we can actually build SALT, uh, a, a new really big instrument, not only a the kind what we're doing now, but but just like a, a really big one. Then again, you know, SALT 2.0, it could be another SALT as well. It's, it's been thrown around. I am not saying that any of this is decided yet, and but the timeline of making that kind of decisions with the, with the SALT board and the SALT community is probably in a couple of years' time when we see how this current project is going, whether we have enough buy-in, enough good ideas to to decide what the next thing is in a kind of five to 10 year time scale. How big is big? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> somewhere in between what we have now and, <laughs> and, the, and the 40 meter telescope that they're building in Chile. So oh. that will be always out of our, <laughs> of our league. We can, we can uh, participate in that kind of projects. So I don't know if you've discussed in these any of these podcasts the uh, e- ELT. No, we haven't. Yeah, so, so please like, go for it. Yeah, so so the biggest project internationally for ground-based telescopes now is what's called the uh, European Extremely Large Telescope. It's a 39 meter. So so the largest telescopes at the moment are this 10 meter class. So this is going four times bigger in diameter, which is 16 times bigger in uh, collecting area. It's yeah. Oof. Just 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 Google Amazing. Google it. Uh, the, the size of that is 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 just. It's easy to remember the extremely large telescope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That actually started off ten fifteen years ago as a project called Owl, overwhelmingly large telescope. <laughs> OWL. And now they've saved that for the next one. They had to save that because that then it was decided that that's still out of the reach of what what can be technologically done. So that was first uh, downgraded to 42 meters. Everybody loved, you know, you guys probably know Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Everybody loved the 42 meter telescope. Eventually they had to, they couldn't justify the 42. Those extra <laughs> three meters, from, they couldn't get another three meters? Yeah, so that was downgraded to 39. Uh, <laughs> and then there's two other projects of that 25, 30 meter class built by Americans that 30 meter telescope yeah. and a uh, giant Magellan telescope. But those three are the big giant projects mm. at the moment. When are they going to be ready? Um, over the next five, six years. That's sort of the 2025 is sort of the kind of the goal, goal to yeah. this. Yeah, I've seen some foundations built on really? social media. Yeah. Yeah, we'll tweet. Yeah. So they've yeah. So they've they've started as as projects certainly mm-hmm. and they're moving on. Uh, but it'll still be a few years to put them together. I should mention one project though in, in this context, which uh, goes back to the time domain. So there's a really magnificent telescope, not as big, but an eight meter class being built now in Chile, uh, called the LSST, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. And that's the kind of the, the core of this future transient time domain science because it'll scan the whole sky in a couple of nights to a depth of what 
you know, these eight, 10 meter class telescopes mm. can only do. So it will see literally hundreds of thousands or million things go bump in the night every night. So the, the motivation for building these algorithms and systems, how to treat things quicker rather than human decisions really comes from that, that project. If, if you'd want to, you could, you could put all the telescopes in the world just following up things which come from LSST. Not everybody would want to do that because this other interesting thing happened, you know, like galaxies which, which don't really go bust every night. <laughs> uh, you still want to do that science as well, but it will open up a totally new parameter space to the universe, what LSST can do. And South Africa is also right in the thick of that thing. So one of the, there's three South African PIs who, who get funding, who, who get direct access to the data and what they do. One of them here at, South, uh, at SAO, and even the other two are in close connection with things that we do here. So, so we'll have no shortage of things to follow up on, basically. Certainly not, certainly not, yeah. So we've got to get the Intelligent Observatory up and running. Yes, we do. When does LSST yeah. go online? It's, it's soon, right? It's a couple of years now. The dome is already there. I uh -huh. just checked a couple of weeks ago their latest webcams. Whew. <laughs> See, there's going to be plenty for astronomers to do. There's, there's <laughs> no lack. <laughs> I don't think any of us are going to be out of jobs anytime no, soon. not at all, not at all. <laughs> Uh, and I've also got Maxi written down on my piece of paper. What's that? Right. So Maxi, that was um, when it's talking about that instrument, which is being built for SALT as part of the Generation 1.5. That is Maxi. Oh, that's Maxi. And Maxi, okay. and that, that, the, the original acronym comes from Maximum Efficiency. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the idea was to build a, uh, is, is to build an instrument which would, with maximum both time efficiency and throughput efficiency and wavelength coverage efficiency, be suitable for people who want to to uh, ID, characterize very quickly these transients. You know, something goes up, we don't know what it is, turn salt to it. If it's a faint one, you know, you could do it with a one-meter or two-meter telescope. But if you need a salt, if you need 10-meter class telescope, turn salt to it with this instrument, you get a spectrum in in very short time. Again, it's, it's one of those pieces which makes us ready for this LSST period, era of time. So if we can break down that, that description. So this is an instrument that is on salt. Or we'll yes, go on salt. That's right. And it's to read out the the spectrum, so the like the spectral signature of of an object, right? Very very quickly. Yep. And we need to do that because this object is doing something on a very short time, time scale. Time scale, yes. Mm -hmm. Or it just appeared, mm -hmm. and uh, you might be the first one ever looking at it, and you want to catch it before. You know, other <laughs> <laughs> but especially having instrument like that on a large telescope is is valuable because there's a lot of transients which are brighter and they can be followed up by a multiple multitude of other telescopes, including ours, but the faintest ones will always go to the largest telescopes and uh, putting an instrument which is very efficient on the largest telescope gives you that much competitive edge. And there is not many others who can do it. So you know, there's a handful of telescopes in the world who can do it and all of them have other things to do as well. And there's a lot of political and uh, astronomical community will in South Africa to dedicate significant fractions of time for time domain transient astronomy. And that's something that puts us on a map again. We can do things that others cannot, and that quantity and quality of um, yeah. data. And just finally, so you're the director of the SAAO and you have been for how many years? Director since the beginning of last year. Okay, year since the beginning of 2018. 18. Yeah. Okay, then so just can you say a few words about what that's like? 
<laughs> and what it's like to be Dan's boss. <laughs> Terrible. Well, Dan, being Dan's boss is, is excellent. He, <laughs> he knows exactly what he's doing. I don't need to worry about this. There's, there's some departments uh, in, in this organization you just don't need to worry, right? They, they, they know what they're doing, and that's how it should be. Don't worry, so. Patrick. I'm not recording. can tell the truth. <laughs> I'm joking. So, yeah, what I, I see him as my role ideally is is really directing. So making sure that we have the resources. So going after resources that uh, otherwise might be lost. So at that political level, fund fundraising level, making sure that we have good collaborations with everybody. And then kind of giving space to all the other managers, you know, at, at various levels, especially at the, the level of reporting me for them to really good, do a good job to, to, to support them. That's what I see my role. Um, of course, it sometimes it gets a little bit more tricky than that. You know, I spend a lot of time uh, trying to make things work and, you know, getting people to work together and... Um, and yeah, you know, it's it's uh, hey, that's management. <laughs> I haven't had any training for that. <laughs> so, learning so learning on the job. It's been a steep learning learning curve, but overall, yes, I I do enjoy it, even though it makes for long long days. What do you find is the most rewarding part of the job? I think when things eventually work. Mm-hmm. So putting effort into whether it's just human efforts, you know, kind of negotiation and uh, and that kind of that kind of effort, or the putting teams and putting people together who then make it actually happen and they build something or come up with a proposal and they, the funding goes ready. Those are, those are very rewarding. I tell this to my staff all the, all the time. It's really important what we do and that we do it well, but I think it's always very important that how we do it and how, how people relate to each other and how what kind of an organization we are culture-wise and how we treat each other and uh, what impact we make into the society. So all those, when, when I see those things happening as well, when, if, we, if I see that there has been an impact, say in Sutherland Town, I feel it would be a disgrace if we have a ob- high-tech observatory 15 kilometers from town which has all sorts of problems if we'd have no impact there it, it just cannot be so we're trying to do that uh, and helping out in, in various ways whenever you see something positive happening that's very rewarding when you see people starting new initiatives within the staff whether it's just staff wise or, or looking outward that's very rewarding in addition to you know science papers, of course, I'm very proud when when Everhard Telescopes really comes up with a really exciting result, which goes into the media and uh, makes a splash in the scientific community. So I, I, yeah, there's there's many many different aspects that you can feel very pleased about. Thank you, Petri. Thanks very much. Thank you for being an excellent director and helping to put SAAO on the on the map internationally and making it internationally renowned. Well, thank you. <laughs> and thank you for taking the time out of your schedule. Sure. We'll yeah, it's been a bit funny being in this box over here. <laughs> <laughs> you can give us a new studio if you like, Petri. <laughs> ah, ah, okay. Now I see. This was it. just a funding. <laughs> <laughs> cool. No, really, uh, thank you very much. And uh, we'll chat to you again soon, hopefully. Great. Thanks, Petri. See you guys. Good to hear from your boss, Dan. Yeah. Good that he's left the room. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> he's uh, going to hear this. <laughs> uh, I hope so. I'm sure he listens to all of our, our episodes. Very nice to hear the, the sort of general overview of the direction of the observatory. 
it's very exciting. There's a, a lot happening and it's always nice to be looking forward at uh, what's to come in the next years and decades. Yeah, I couldn't believe how how huge the plans are for the future of the SAAO. Salt 2.0, maybe like maybe like a 20 meter telescope or something. Well, I mean, that, that's the thing. Like, And that's what Pedro said, for these big telescopes, for these big projects, You've got to look like 15, 20 years in the future. Yeah. You've got to be doing the work. You've got to be putting proposals together, starting yeah. to get support. Just like the SKA, how many years has, it, has that been in planning for? I have no idea. I, I mean, think it was in the 90s sometimes yeah. when, when, they, when they first uh, suggested that as a Yeah, concept. like a good 30 years at least. Yeah. 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 And, uh, I mean, what, the first dish is up. So. Yes. Yeah, yes. it's all happening now. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So uh, that is it for season one. Oh! of the Cosmic Savannah. <laughs> uh, we will be taking a little break for, mm-hmm. and then joining you again for some more episodes on South African and African and astronomy. Yeah, we've got quite a lot already planned. We've got more simulations. We've got some awesome astrotourism happening in Kenya. Uh, a lot of good things. And we're both doing a bit of traveling, so we'll yeah. take the recording equipment along yeah. and get some. Yeah, we're both off on a few adventures. That's why we're taking a short hiatus. So we'll have a lot to talk about when we're, when we're back. But in the meantime, if you're really missing your African astronomy podcast, we applaud you. <laughs> <laughs> Top points. There is uh, somewhere else that our listeners can get their fix. Yeah, so I chatted to Alan Firstfeld, who runs the Urban Astronomer podcast. Uh, he also started off as a blog, uh, and he can tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, it's a, a great podcast on South African astronomy and chatting to some of the people involved. Cool. Uh, So let's hear from Alan. I'm joined by Alan Firstfeld, who runs the Urban Astronomer podcast. Uh, Alan, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and about your podcast? Sure. My name is Alan Firstfeld. And yeah, as you said, I've run the Urban Astronomer podcast. Uh, It started as a blog, actually, about 10 years ago for the International Year of Astronomy. And in the last two years, I've I've started making recordings where I interview um, I interview people involved in South African astronomy, just to show off who's doing the work, you know, showing off um, the the value that that we contribute globally to the science of astronomy, and it's and it's all, it's all sorts of people, you know, it's professional astronomers, it's amateur astronomers, it's um, observatory technicians and the like, just to show that there's so many ways that we are able to contribute, so many ways that you could contribute if you are interested in in an astronomy career. And in between the interviews, I try and explain just some of the very basics of the science behind astronomy. Yeah, and I think you've done an excellent job. I mean, I think it's, uh, I agree entirely with your sentiment in terms of just trying to speak to the people um, who are involved in this. We we as a country um, have a lot of astronomy going on. We're global leaders and and trying to get that excitement across and get our country and our um, the, the general public knowledgeable about what's going on, right. who the who the people uh, are, um, and and what it means to them, it's mm. it's it's yeah, it's a challenge, but it's really quite exciting and rewarding. Yeah, no, definitely, exactly, and. Uh the show is starting to get big enough that I'm beginning to get real feedback, and um, we're starting a second season soon, actually. Um, oh, right. In fact, just planning to launch the, the first episode early in July. Okay. Um, you, of course, uh, you'll be able to hear yourself <laughs> on, on the early episodes. So, <laughs> I look forward to it. <laughs> yeah. Great. So, uh, and w- where can we find you? Okay. Best place to find me is on uh, is on the podcast website at uh, urban-astronomer.com. Uh, there are subscribe links all over the place, um, as well as complete <laughs> playlists. 
Otherwise, if you if you normally listen through through an app on your phone or what have you, just search for Urban Astronomer on on iTunes or on Stitcher or, or any of the usual directories. I believe I'm on all of them. I think even Google has stopped rejecting me for being in the wrong country, and I think even they have. Me, so <laughs> easy to find. <laughs> Great, thank you very much, Alan, and we look forward to your next season. Thank you very much. Uh, looking forward to delivering it. All right, and that's a wrap. Yeah. <sighs> we'll see you after the break. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you. Oh, you'll hear. You'll hear us. You'll hear us after the break. Mm. Bye. I <laughs> know. <laughs> oh, wait. Okay. That's very final. <laughs> <laughs> As always, thank you very much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next season Ooh. of The Cosmic Savannah. <laughs> you can visit our website, thecosmicsavannah.com, where we'll have links related to today's episode. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we'll post extra pictures, videos, and throwbacks to previous episodes. We're at Cosmic Savannah. That's Savannah spelled S-A-V-A-N-N-A-H. Special thanks today to my boss, Professor Petri Vasanen, and Alan Firstfeld from the Urban Astronomer podcast for speaking with us. Thanks to Mark Olnott for music production, Janis Brink for the astrophotography, Lana Serai for graphic design, Michal Werchek for photography and assistance, Sebastian Tulunski-Abrochki for help in post-production, and Tabisa Fikalepi for help with social media. We gratefully acknowledge support from the South African National Research Foundation and the South African Astronomical Observatory to help keep the podcast running. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to help us out, please tell a friend. And we'll speak to you next time on, on the, the Cosmic, Cosmic Savannah. Savannah. Welcome to the... <laughs> <laughs> there was no enthusiasm at all there. <laughs> Yeah, we'll be uh, chatting with uh, Professor Pierce, and we'll speak to you next time on the the Cosmic Cosmic Savannah. Savannah. (laughs) So cheesy. (laughs) Let's do it again. And we'll speak to you next time on on the the Cosmic Cosmic Savannah. Savannah. (laughs) Dan, I don't have a blooper sound yet. We got all the way through season one, and I didn't get a blooper sound. Well, my blooper sound. Yeah. That one. And Imogen had a good one. No, you don't have your own blooper sound. Yeah, I don't have my own. Ah. Mm. All right, I'll workshop it during the break. Yeah, yeah. Go, just go through conversation, make some mistakes. Like other people, talk to people, and then make mistakes. It'll come naturally. Thanks for that advice, Dan. <laughs> <laughs>